0: When I got back to school uh, to start senior year in uh, fall 95, I had noticed that my left hand uh, had lost some of its fine motor coordination. I couldn't arpeggiate as well as I remembered because I didn't really play much over the summer. And I got back like, maybe I should practice more. I'm out of sorts. And I kept practicing and doing more work and, and it kept getting worse. Went home, so the neurologist, uh, GP I said like look, look, I got two weeks left to finish this semester please let me finish and I came back and all hell broke loose during those two weeks cuz I lost my, my peripheral vision got weird and I started slurring my speech and I had these fainting spells and I barely eked through those last two weeks through finals uh, my concerts and the musicals got home and then MRI and there it is giant golf ball in the middle of my brain. You don't just finish cancer treatment after brain cancer. There's an endless array of late effects and side effects and consequences physically, emotionally, psychologically uh, that you carry forward. There's no finish line with cancer for anyone. The treatment is the same. The, the chemotherapy is all the same. It's about how you are treated from a dignity perspective based on your age in life because that matters and now that there's so much evidence based data to support that outcomes are improved when you're treated age appropriately and that there's cost benefit savings productivity gains, health economic indicators, that when you treat somebody as a person they live longer, they live better and they save the system money You can't argue with that.
1: On this week's episode, we bring you the remarkable story of Matthew Zachary. In 1995, Matthew was a music major in his senior year of college at Binghamton University when he started having symptoms that affected his playing of the piano. After eliminating possible causes, doctors diagnosed him with a malignant brain tumor. Matthew takes us along for a ride on his journey and battle with cancer, giving us an insider's perspective of the emotional roller coaster it causes. All of Matthew's life plans had to be put on hold, expressing that when cancer calls, everything else is secondary. As we head into this week of Thanksgiving, it's a literal reminder to be thankful for our health, for our loved ones, and for all those who have gone before us, young and old, but left us with lessons of strength and hope. This is American Real, I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Matt Zachary, that guy you might know. Matt, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. You haven't been back to Binghamton, and what do you think? What's what's your impression of this area, spending some time here for school, and now you come back all these years later, has it
0: changed much? The only measurable difference is Starbucks. Okay. Because <laughs> Talbot's is still on Vestal Parkway. It is. No, it's, it's been a tremendous change, and I, 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 overdue for the region and the area. It needed the morale, needed the boost, the economy, and just to see the school go from 10,000 students when I was there to, what, 18,000 students. Now all the new housing, all the new dorms, it, it was amazing. I, I, the year I graduated, they're like, we're going to build a stadium one day. <laughs> and like, now it's this giant And there yeah. it is. It's great. Yeah. Very, very impressed with the, with the neighborhood. So let's talk about your
1: early days. How did you get involved with music? Um, you play the piano, you're a composer. Yeah. How did all that begin?
0: My mom played as a kid. Uh, she had a gift. Um, she has like either perfect pitch or rel- relative pitch, and, and she played as a kid. And um, when she got ma- <laughs> I can't believe this when she got married, on her honeymoon, her mother, my grandma, threw her piano out. Like, you don't need this. You're moving out. Like, and then she's like, Ma, you threw the piano out. So she didn't have a piano for years. And then she started teaching uh, kindergarten in the 80s. And there was a piano in the kindergarten class. And that was the school I was at. Uh, I was in fifth grade. She was a kindergarten teacher. So that was the first time that even the idea of my mom played piano. So then the year after that, when I started sixth grade, my dad bought her a piano for the house. So I came home from sixth grade and there's a piano in the house. I'm like, okay, I know what this is. And my mom started playing again, all the show tunes and all the fun stuff. And I went over her and I said, where do you put your fingers? And she said, oh, it's like this. I said, like this? She's like, I think you're getting lessons. So like a minute later, I had lessons in sixth grade. And the rest is history. I started just playing. and. natural talent and uh, a great ear and I could, I could hear something on the radio and play it right away and I could read sheet music. And I learned, um, I also played horn in the marching band. So I had a sense of clefts, which made the, the, the dexterity needed in both hands work uh, big fish in a small pond. But you picked it up very naturally, very naturally. Yes. And who are some of your favorite composers? <clears throat> um, in, I would say in, in intermediate school, it was whoever got me the attention of the girls. Okay. So that would be Journey, Elton John, Billy Joel, Genesis, Steve Winwood, Gloria Estefan, Madonna, Paula Abdul. You just play all the pop songs and like they flock to you. And then my mom was like, you probably should know more than just this pop stuff. So she introduced me to Jerome Kern. Cole Porter, George Gershwin, Lerner and Lowe, Rogers and Hart. And I started to pick up all the American classics and all the show tunes out there. And then she's like, maybe you should get jazz lessons too. So I took jazz lessons and I learned all about improvisation and, and the, the different eras of jazz. Uh, got to Binghamton, which I was thrilled to get into Binghamton, uh, and instantly jumped into the music major uh, while I was actually trying to get my five-year master's in biomedical engineering, hmm. which lasted all of 18 months. <laughs> Before I was like, nope. And I realized at Binghamton um, that music was my calling and I wanted to be a film composer. So, did you put all of your focus in, into music at that point? Yeah, it was sophomore year, first semester, 7 a.m. organic chemistry, four class that done me in. And then I went to the registrar and I said oh, I'll change my major to, I think it was Lit Ret. <laughs> Some, like, stopgap. Right. i would like, Dad, all that money you're paying for this master's degree, sorry. And uh, quickly changed it to music after ret, and just double down on, on music directing, all the theater shows, main stage, DC players, Hinman, um, off-campus stuff, uh, j- the jazz band. I was in the jazz band. I was the, um, the official rehearsal pianist for recitals in the music department. I led the Theater 101 repertory troupe for four years, and I was the pianist for all the modern dance classes on campus. Wow. And at that time, what were you thinking you wanted to do for a living? John Williams. Hmm. I wanted to be bald, I got that part, but I wanted to write for Hollywood. So, but I wasn't content to, like, you know, most musicians don't make a living. They, you know, no offense to band directors, they, 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 they're the blood, sweat, and tears of passion in high schools. But I didn't want that. And, and I realized that I probably needed a plan B. So I kind of made my own major, and which you're not really supposed to do. But they have like this secret program, which is gone now, called the Innovative Projects Board. And I only knew about it because my friend did it. She's like, hey, my, my, my Secret Society, Skull and Bones, IPB. So I pitched the IPB board with this idea of a music, computer science, theater hybrid m- major, called contemporary musicianship, which I kind of just pull out of my ass. You make words up, and they loved it. And my 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 um, interview with these professors was a nine-minute symphony that I wrote on the computer, and they're like, "Okay, sure, whatever you want." <laughs> so That's I sold it. I, it totally, like cl- close the deal right there. Shark Tank for, for for pedagogy, it was great. Um, and then I gave my junior recital in Kasada Sioux in April ninety four, April April ninety, April ninety five, right. Uh, and then summer ninety five, I applied to USC Film School, and I was like right there, like it was that was it. Senior year was starting. The following September 96, ninety six, ninety ninety, sorry 90. 90 Yes, September ninety six. I would have started at UC Film School and studying with the late Jerry Goldsmith. Oh. That was my life. Twenty, twenty one years old. Like, who knows? Bright future. What they want to do when they're that young, right? Right. I, right now, I was writing symphonies and orchestrations and playing for writing for big band and you know, ethnomusicology with like didgeridoos. Like, I was living in this moment of like never sleeping, writing. I had stack keyboards like like Van Halen you know? at <laughs> the computer. I lived and breathed in the Fine Arts Building, played piano all day, every day, nonstop, non-stop. Um, and then uh, I guess life got in the way. What happened? Was it um, man plans, God laughs. laughs. When I got back to school uh, to start senior year in uh, fall of 95, I had noticed that my left hand uh, had lost some of its fine motor coordination. I couldn't arpeggiate as well as I remembered because I didn't really play much over the summer. And I got back like, hmm, maybe I should practice more. I'm, I'm out of sorts. And I kept practicing and doing more work, and, and it kept getting worse. And um, I'm also a lefty. So I, could, I had trouble like gripping the pen and writing my name and writing things down. And I'm not ambidextrous, so I couldn't just take the pen here, but I could switch my hands playing piano. Which was kind of a really stupid thing to do without realizing there's something wrong with you. But instead of conducting this way, you know, and playing, I conducted this way. Because I could do gross motor and conduct this way when the piano went to the doctors, went to campus physicians, went to Lord's. Endless misdiagnoses uh, carpal tunnel, meningitis, um, uh, um, what else did they they, uh, Mini stroke. Early onset multiple sclerosis. And then uh, they gave me Robitussin. <laughs> Didn't work. Spoiler. You know, off-label use. <laughs> Robitussin. Um, went home over Thanksgiving break as I was producing both um, Joseph and the Amazing Technical and Dreamcoat and a run for Gory Stories in January over the break. And uh, just kind of Passed out. Um, told my dad I've been having these problems. He's like, "What's wrong with you? You keep the secrets from me. I'm like I know it is." So were
1: you going to the doctors here without all everything telling was up here? Parents?
0: Everything was up here. I, honestly, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. I just like whatever. I'm a stupid twenty-one-year-old kid that's invincible, right? This is just getting in my way. I'll, I'll compensate for it because I can. <laughs> Went home. So the neurologist, uh, GP. I said, like, I got two weeks left to finish this semester. Please let me finish. And I came back and all hell broke loose during those two weeks because I lost my, my peripheral vision, got weird, and I started just my speech, and I had these fainting spells, and I barely eked through those last two weeks through finals, uh, my concerts and the musicals. Got home, and then MRI, and there it is. Giant golf ball in the middle of my brain. So what happened next? I was relieved. Kind of like a weird follow-up to that sentence because there was finally actually something wrong with me. I wasn't crazy. And the dark humor of that is I was like, oh, there's nothing wrong. It's in your head. Literally. Literally in my head. And the, the doctor, genius, human, humanitarian, empathetic human being, Dr. Arbut Um, Orthodox Jew met me on a Friday on Shabbos at his office because it was health and uh, talked my parents through the MRI and what's going to happen next and surgery and he thinks it's benign which is super cool, I'll go back to school nothing will happen, a little speed bump and uh, of course like this was 95 no cell phones landlines, no answering machines or some answering machines like the world went ballistic when my family found out the I have a brain tumor. Um, I had my surgery on January 10th, 96. And then pathology came back that it wasn't benign. It was a malignant tumor, which they found out through the pathology I had been born with. And it just kind of lurked in my head for 21 years. Until like, hey, I'm awake. I'm going to mess you up. So that changed everything. I I didn't know if I'd be going back to school. The prognosis was pretty poor. This typical cancer at this age was usually lethal. Um, And there wasn't like a little book on the shelf they could pull out and say, oh, this is going to happen to Matt. Uh, Because that always happens to kids, not. Young adults or adolescents. I was going to say, do they refer to it
1: today as young adult cancer? Did I read that? It's a
0: pediatric tumor because you're born with it. So it doesn't matter what age you are when you get it. It's pediatric cancer. And what's the size when you're born? Is it
1: tiny and then it grows over time?
0: I mean, mean, it was a large. I guess this, I I don't know the answer to that question. All I know is that by the time my symptoms started, it was growing. So I can only assume it was kind of like unimpactful to the physiology in my brain. And then once it started growing, it was like really rapidly growing because my symptoms really accelerated in like November, December. So the timing was good to get it out of my head in January. And 25
1: years ago, they obviously didn't have the the technique and the medicine that they do today. Yeah.
0: So it was invasive. Very invasive. It was um, full craniotomy because it's in the back of your head. It's not up here. So like, like you know, through the spine behind the, you know, it, Really, uh, underneath the medulla, it's in the cerebellum, so it's like way back here, and it's very dangerous surgery. They didn't tell me the odds, which was good, but I found out afterwards that there was like a twenty-five percent chance of death, of paralysis, or like, and and the fact that I emerged completely unscathed is nothing short of a miracle. At any point in time, were you in pain? Oh God, yes. Like the worst pain in my life. Describe it agonizing agonizing um what they do is they put you on steroids that sort of puff you up and they puff you up so that your ligaments and bones expand to reduce pain and friction but if they wean you off the steroids and you shrink back too quickly all hell breaks loose And, and and on top of the pain that i had just by having my head ripped open. I mean, there's no nerves in your brain. It's really everything healing and your skull finding its space again. Um, Weaning off was uh, I I can't even describe the pain. Um, They joke like the the one to 10 pain scale 50. Like I, I like I couldn't live. I couldn't function. I was wasn't begging for death, but it was just impossible. And how long did that last? About two weeks. Till they finally tapered me off the steroids at the right pace. So, looking back, that was a big oops, a whoopsie on the part of the doctors. They shouldn't have done that, which goes back to you know, you have to listen to the patient. You know, you don't always know what's best. I knew what was best for me, and, and that was what was. Did I have to touch the mic? I think I made a... <laughs> um Yeah, so that made the entire spring up up for grabs, and I had to call the grad school and take my application out of the running because I didn't know if I would be able to. It wouldn't be alive in September of '96.
1: And Matt, let's talk about that because the survival rate was low. Yep. Right. Um, You're young at -hmm. that point. Were your parents talking to you? Was there any preparation? I mean, there was a chance you could have not
0: made it. There's a huge chance. Um, My mother uh, went into a very deep state of depression and left, took a sabbatical from her work as as a first grade teacher and had a very, very difficult time with it. And my father had no choice but to be my champion and to be the advocate and to fight the insurance companies. And he kept a Word document every single day from like December 27th for like a year from now. Every day he wrote a whole journal article, like blogging today in this Word document. And uh, he, he again, like you don't really have a choice. You step up. Um, yeah, and it was, it was you know, um, I don't, not remember it, but it's hard to go back to those times. And uh, so I read the journal, like on this day we did this, and on this day we did this, and on this day we did this. And you know, he he really heralded the family. My brother was a freshman at Binghamton when I was diagnosed and he had a hard time. Obviously he had to stay matriculated. He wasn't gonna take time off in his spring semester, which was his second semester at school, was challenged by his brother going through this stuff. but I I don't remember feeling like I was going to die. It was just so implausible to look at mortality when you're 21. Right. That this would just be a speed bump and I'd get through it and we'd figure it out. And Which is probably a great thing. Ignorance was bliss at the time, even though you're intelligent and you can rationalize and you understand consequences, circumstances, and, circumstance and situationals. Um But I, I, I just wanted to figure out, what I could do today. And if that meant playing piano for an hour a day uh, or reading a book for an hour a day or just writing something in my head because I I couldn't really write yet. My left hand took weeks to grip a pen again. Um, And it took me five years to rehabilitate on my own. This doctor is remarkable. His name is Ehud Arbet and he saved my life. He had the right diagnosis at the right time, connecting with the right doctors at the right time, and the stars aligned, and I had like the best treatment ever um, at NYU and Sloan Kettering. So,
1: and that's that's remarkable. Um, thank goodness for him. Yeah, and I'm sure he's helped a lot of people in in his yeah. time. Okay, so now you're recovering. uh What happens next? Do you? Do you spend uh,
0: a lot of time at home or do you go back to school? Well, recovery took seven years. You don't just finish cancer treatment after brain cancer. There's an endless array of late effects and side effects and consequences, physically, emotionally, psychologically, um, that you carry forward. There's no finish line with cancer for anyone. And my entire life was disrupted. I did not get to pursue my dreams. I couldn't do the one thing I cared the most about. I was impotent, infertile, hairless. I lost 110 pounds. My friends went to college. Everyone else kind of shunned me. And I was left in a bed. And I feel like I left. I lost my life, but I didn't die. So it's, it's not a cut and dry. Um, I had no career path. I had no future. I had friends over here, no friends over there. No peer support. What we call today meeting someone like you to, like AA created this relationship with peers like you. Nothing existed in the '90s in that sense, and it would have been nice to know I wasn't alone. And um, the summer was terrible and didn't really do much. Also, lost all my muscle mass, so I couldn't really walk. Um, I went to the gym and on a treadmill like every day for like three months straight just to build up some stamina again. I couldn't eat solid food for a year and a half because my throat had swelled up. Um, I was on a liquid diet. I couldn't eat anything thick for a year or two like chocolate or peanut butter. Um, I lived on Listerine because I couldn't brush my teeth um, just to freshen my mouth. Um, I had... Checkups every three months, which just created more and more anxiety because they didn 't know if it was going to come back or not and uh, i w- i couldn 't live it, this was not what a twenty one year old 's life should be when I should be off gallivanting and enjoying myself and moving to l a and meeting people and being creative so it, it was a life interrupted, and um, I did graduate on time I did finish my my studies and I don't know if you can cut away to photos, but I, have amazing photos uh, of that day. Um, miracle that I lasted that long and miracle that I kept staying alive and the scans kept working and the uh, side effects eventually wore off, you know, um, the acute ones after a year or so. But I was immunocompromised for almost a decade. Um, bacterial infections, upper respiratory sinus infections for years. Five, six a year, nonstop, endless antibiotic therapies, um, because you're just you're radiated, and your body can't deal with it. The 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 entire concept of cancer treatment is we're going to kill you to the point where everything dies, and hopefully the good parts grow back. Like it's so barbaric, and that's I'm emblematic of that. Uh, And there was no chemotherapy back then that treated brain cancer; otherwise, it would have been possibly less horrible. In fact, so here's a patient advocate story that I carry forward to today. Um, They did want me to do chemotherapy after the radiation, after the surgery, um, as like a just-in-case measure. And I was ready to say yes. And I said, like, well, when am I going to die now that I'm alive? And they said, we're going to give you a 50% chance to survive for five years. And I'm like, I'm 22 I don't want a five-year prognosis. I want a 50-year prognosis. And I said, well, if you give me this chemotherapy, what does that bump that 50% up to? And had I known then what I know now, I would have asked them from whose ass they plucked the following statistic. And they said 55%. Um, And I was like, look, I'll take whatever I can get. Let's talk chemo. And then my dad's best friend, my godfather, Jay Tishfield, is a world-known geneticist. He's been a world-known geneticist since the 70s. Um, and he he asked my dad, he's like, I wanna see the chart that Sloan Kettering wants to give Matt of this chemotherapy. I didn't know what chemotherapy was. Like, It's like nine things. It's not just one, it's like a martini. It's like, it's like seven different beverages in the cocktail I give you. Uh, so Jay took a look at this cocktail. And just for timestamp to get your data from a cancer center today is pulling teeth to get it 25 years ago was a government miracle, but Jay had the clout to get that data. And he looked at the regiment and he noticed that one of the drugs was called Vincristin and Vincristin is one of the most powerful chemotherapy agents out there. Um, it does its job of killing anything in your body, um, and you, in good parts, go back. But it's, its side effect is neuropathy in your fingers and toes, like forever. And I didn't know that. The doctors didn't disclose that little, little nugget of information to me. So Jay said, imagine being a godfather, telling your 22-year-old godson, that you don't want chemotherapy because you'd rather die in five years with the chance to play again than die in 50 years never having piano again. So to be told that in like May of 96 was astonishing. And to this day, again, my soapbox these days is how do you know what's right for you? Because I would not have known that little nugget, and it didn't occur to these doctors that I was a human being, and that piano. How many concert pianists come through here with brain cancer? You think that this would matter? So I said no. I turned down chemotherapy in what I would consider the riskiest moxie chutzpah I could have ever mustered up because Jay said, my Uncle Jay said, this is what's best for you. Um, and I re- <laughs> remember going back to these two doctors, Tom Merchant and uh, Brian Davis. Tom Merchant actually runs St. Jude now, and Brian Davis runs Mayo Clinic. So they did all right. Wow. I kind of had the best guys, <laughs> you know. Uh, but Bedside Matter wasn't their thing when they were in their 30s. And um, What would you say to them? I went back and I said, I want. Chemo- I don't want your chemotherapy. And they said, you know, we're trying to save your life. You know, I was like, at, at what cost? And I walked out. And that was my last day as a cancer patient. Or back then we were victims, right, in the 90s. We were all victims in the 90s. Uh, but that ends that chapter. And then, of course, like, I, I, 1996 was a blur. Um, my dad have and then I did nothing June, July, August, September, October nothing like on the couch every day in the bed but no treatment either no treatment but just recovering I mean I couldn't sleep my skin was burned all my hair was gone I could barely stand I couldn't eat solid food like my quality of life was so shitty um, that like like you should be lucky to be alive like I don't feel alive like I I should be dating I should be in grad school I should be being 22. Um, and uh, <laughs> my dad says something along the lines of like, I was like Halloween. He's like, you know, if you're going to die, you should die employed. <laughs> it was nicer than that, but like that was the gist. And I realized that I, I, I had a I my plan B worked, right? So this this major I made up of music and computer science and theater came in handy because I had a tech background and I could tinker with computers and fix things and i've been coding in like dos and fortran and c since i was like eight years old and i got a job fixing macintosh computers for one of the leading ad agencies in manhattan i was like that mac kid that knew all the mac <laughs> hacks great. in the 1990s when yeah. macs were like the worst things ever in their legacy of being awesome, the '90s were the worst era. Of I remember Macintosh. <laughs> the square, terrible, the beige, oh, yes. disgusting. But before we
1: move on to that, I just I'd like to ask you, sure, for people that are listening that may have may know someone going through cancer, mm-hmm. especially someone young. What would you advise they do? Because you said that you know you didn't the, the friends were gone. You know, yeah. What do you advise people to do? Should they reach out? How do you reach out? Because I, I know it, it, it seems to be uncomfortable for people to reach out when people are sick, whether they have cancer or anything else. Right. What, what advice would you have?
0: I mean, it, it's individual. Everyone's gonna manage it based on who they are as a, as a human being. But 2019 is a, it's another planet compared to 25 years ago. And cancer is like this known in society now. No one doesn't know about cancer. And it's still boogeyman. I think it's less boogeyman. But to the extent that it's easier to know there's someone you can talk to, you now have the choice to do that. You may not want to. You may want to be alone and and surround yourself with different communities or not or your church groups or barbershops or your synagogue or whatever. Um, Colleges have cancer support groups now. You know, all the communities have some degree. and Who doesn't know the American cancer? There's so many groups now right. that to not know that there's support for you would be a shanda, you know, like a, a shame. Um, but I think we have more individual choice to take advantage of these support services than ever before. And my advice would be consider finding your tribe. If you're seventeen, find the teens. If you're into college, find the college students. I mean, the entire reason I'm fast forwarding, but the entire reason I founded uh, stupid cancer was to be the community that I wished that I had when I was dying on the couch, you know, in the summer of 1996. You know uh, the guidance today is, is it's easier than ever to know you're not alone. And at least you have the objective ability to make a decision on what's right for you. That's non-medical. It's the one area of Facebook that actually still works Mm. is the the patient groups on Facebook and Twitter.
1: And for the friend, the the cousin, the relative that they're on the other side and how do they reach out? How would you advise that they reach out to their, to their loved ones? It's, Diagnosed with cancer, just went through a surgery. Again, I think there's some distance there. Even, you know, my neighbor uh, unfortunately passed away last year and he fought for not too long, maybe a year or two. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I always wanted to spend more time with him, but I just felt like there was a bit of a distance. And I didn't know if it was me or him, but um, it was uncomfortable. And I, you know, I, I just would
0: like to know from the, you know, the patient's perspective. Yeah. What could people do to help? I think it's it's instinctual to go with pity first, unintentionally. I'm so sorry. How are you feeling? You know, if this, is, if there's anything I can do with thoughts and prayers, like, it, it's just our nature. If you're a kind-hearted person, you want to let that person know that you're available to them. But there are different ways now to approach that without having that person feel unintentionally, you know, like, like pandered to or right. Platitudes. Right. Right. Um, what I like to do is I like to say, you know, that totally sucks. There's no Hallmark card in the country to make this any better, but I'm here for you. Again, it's, it's hard to go after a human instinct. you know. If, um, and, and one thing you don't want to do, oh, you have cancer? I'm sorry, my grandma died from cancer. Right. Don't do that. <laughs> I don't need to be reminded of, of oh, my dog died from cancer. Like, it doesn't help me. The lemon from lemonade. Duh. I, I think it's gonna be uh, a while, cause you can't change human instinct. If you are a naturally caring, empathetic human being, which we hope people are, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're compelled to have that level of, of of empathy in a way that you don't know how to communicate, because it catches you off guard. And the first thing you want to do is you, you try to normalize. Oh, cancer! You know, my 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 friend's son had cancer; he died. <laughs> don't do that. But it's I think it's going to be what it is. But I, I, the counterweight to that is that you don't have to feel pitied because you now have opportunities to not feel pitied out there. You know, the how are you feeling trope is always going to be there. I mean, I'm 25 years out, and my my uncle's like, you're right. <laughs> I'm a little drunk, but I'm all right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of scotch, but outside of that, I'm fine today. Yeah. Um, but I, I, would, I would, there's no right advice for that. Um, it's going to be what it is. And, and having empathy also means knowing when not to say something, which can be more powerful.
1: So let's talk about your foundation that you started Mm -hmm. um and i think the name today is stupid cancer
0: but it had a couple of different names over the years right it um it was uh the ideation heard around the world (laughs) you kind of roll with the punches and listen to the crowd and let the river carve itself and it like when federal express became fedex that was the origins of when i knew it was the right thing um I met my first other kid with cancer uh, seven years after I was diagnosed. I had never known another college student or 20-something with cancer. No kidding. It was all babies and old people, because that's yeah. what it is. It's mostly old people and babies, but to to know that there was a tribe for me that I wished I'd had known about, yeah. was like, how the hell did I not, what? And, and just, again, in the irony of life, his name is Craig Lustig and, um, he had brain cancer in in his twenties. He was 10 years older than me. Masters in public health from NYU, Columbia from Columbia, sorry, NYU (laughs) Columbia and, um, was on the board of directors of the most influential policy shop in DC for patient cancer research, advocacy, legislation. A lot of words there, but like it's called the national, Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, founded in 1996, uh, the year I was diagnosed, um, to become the leading influencer in policy changes. They put together stuff like CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, Hillary Clinton's Pediatric Cancer Initiative after she was, before she was Secretary of State, and um, all sorts of amazing Medicaid reimbursements and like they And he was the guy on the board. So I, I hit the jackpot wasn't just like I met a guy who I could relate to. He's like, oh, and here's the entire world that you need to know about. Here's the cancer land of other young adults with cancer, of long-term pediatrics, of advocates and researchers and nonprofit people and everything. And that was the moment I realized over the course of like three years, I was slowly plucked out of the ether of my backup career, which was fixing Macintoshes. And I got my two branding and marketing. I learned all the cool logos and branding and stuff and, and. I said to him, like, like, what do we do now? He's like, I think you could become an advocate. And I said, what's an advocate? Right, let's take ourselves out of the bubble. What does that mean? I knew the Advocate magazine for the LGBT community. I don't know what Advocate meant. Am I passing laws? Am I doing this? Like, no, you no. Can, you can help other young adults. No, they're not alone. That's advocacy. Because you're standing up for what their interests, because they don't know what they need. And you're here to help them. You know, talk about how, Um, You know, uh, when you enter the Shit Happens store, there's no greeters. So you can be a greeter (laughs) when the next person enters the Shit Happens store. Um, And I was just compelled to kind of rip the Velcro across and move my career into this new space. Um, I was recently married, no kids, had a nice flush from the agency world. Nothing to lose. And over the course of a couple of years, the brand became Stupid Cancer. And I say brand because most nonprofits aren't brands. You know, they're they're just like pity parties or the this person died foundation or or pink ribbons and cancer research. Nothing about the the humanity and the dignity of going through crap and having a hand, a guardrail, a sommelier, some kind of like concierge to make it suck a little less. And And it sounds like you made it cool. I made it cool. I made cancer cool. Stupid cancer is still the dominant brand in well-being for adolescents, young adults, millennials and Gen Xers, um, and now Gen Zers in high school. We're the community that you didn't know you needed. It sucks to be part of, but we're glad you're here. And no judgments, no stigma, normalization, immediate access to resources you now can choose to take advantage of. And within six months of launching the original website, in January of 2007, Time Magazine 17th on the list of best 50 websites of the year. Incredible. I coded it by hand. Oh, that's awesome. It was like this junky little shitty website. Like it, it was like with Bing and, and LinkedIn and, and Yelp and YouTube and wow. like this little dinky Matt. How did that cap. make you feel? It was like, what the hell's going on? The snarkiness, the comedy, the, 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 the edginess was so disruptive. Another word that got bastardized. But back then, it was disruptive. <laughs> and it made people really think, like, is it okay to be snarky and to make fun of it and to poke a stick at it and to call people out? And, 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 and I, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to run a nonprofit organization. I was just like, oh, like, let's just do this because whatever. And um, someone handed a microphone to me and said, you want to do a radio show? Like a non-terrestrial, like, like, like dial-up, pre-DSL, shitty internet, you know, 96-baud, whatever, 2007 dial-up connections. The word podcast doesn't even exist. No, I, I launched a radio show, a live radio show with no pre-tape, no archive, no, you can't listen to it ever again, gone from the world of vapor after the show ended. Uh, called the stupid cancer show and that's when the com- the company changed to the stupid cancer brand because that was really sticky um, i must have booked the first year in a week and a half 60 shows you know wow. every monday live and then shows here and there in between as needed and what was the format where you did you have guests on yeah yeah the, i i actually invented a format it was an opening segment um uh, all like 80s music <laughs> <laughs> I read journey. a rant. Yeah. Journey. no, Actually, it was, it was um, uh, uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. So Tears for Fears, okay. Live and Breathe, The Ethos. Um, and I, I, I'd like to say Fair Use, but I used it for like 12 years. So, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Tears for Fears. Um, I don't think they would come out for the cancer guy <laughs> for Fair That's Use. Right. But uh, I wrote a rant for every single show. Um, and I read a five- to eight-minute Dennis Miller-style tirade or, or Bill Maher-style tirade at the beginning of every show for two years. And then I did a segment with one person telling their story, me interviewing. So a ten minutes of, five to ten minutes of me, a bit about the news, promoting a website or some article here and there, talking to somebody for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and then a segment on a topic. And I programmatized it. Every single show by myself until I had staff, which was in 2010. So I went three years with interns and volunteers and built this from scratch. Um, launched the first cancer patient conference in the world for young adults, which has grown to have like 12,000 attendees and wow. the biggest called CancerCon. Where was that held the first time? It was in New York for a few years. Then it was in Vegas for a few years. Cause Vegas. It's been in Denver for a few years, and now it's going to uh, – Seattle, and then Minneapolis. Um, we had a road trip for five years, 35,000 miles across the country with 25 or 30 stops and thousands of people in media and television. So while this is happening, I just have to ask you, so did you feel like, okay,
1: I found my passion? Did well, it feel
0: it, that way? Because it sounds like you were really it, it into was, it. It was a sublimation because I, I knew I would never be a pianist again. Not as a career, not as a—I wouldn't be able to do that. I could play again. I was writing again. I had albums out there just for myself, not like the 19 cents I get from iTunes every month, you know, thanks, you know, whoever buys my iTunes for 19 cents a month. But I found a purpose. I found um, a way to be me because of what happened to me. And I said before, stupid cancer has become everything I wished I had in the '90s. And for people diagnosed today or even five years ago, it's there the day you're diagnosed to find out about. And now now you have a choice. You can curl up in the bath if that's what you need, but now you know that there's this is over here for you. And it has spawned a, a global movement of young adult cancer awareness. Not that it's better or worse than kids and old people, but it's different and your quality of life is very different than your quality of life as a kid or someone retired on medicare yeah. um fertility isolation fear anxiety stress dating relationships employment you know all these things are they suck when you're well at 22 26 30 years old they're that much worse when you're dealing with a chronic illness or a a diagnosis of cancer. And that's the the wake up call that I feel the world has now. That Stupid Cancer with our allies and other nonprofits and researchers, the NCI, the NIH, the CDC, amazing organizations band together to create this awareness, research, funding, best practices, standards of care, medical education, guidelines, uh, med school training, nurse navigation, social workers for young adults, long term pediatrics exist today. Because of that snarky shit in the mid two thousands, with this raucalian gang of breakfast clubbers that just wanted to make a dent. Well done. It's it's
1: something that uh, you know, I, I think about like white space. This didn't exist, right? No. You filled a huge void for people.
0: Um, I would imagine all around the world, not only in in our country, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean. It, Australia, Japan, um, New Zealand, Europe, uh, Brazil, Argentina. I mean, a couple of just, we we know they exist now. There's an entire European young adult cancer initiative that's basically like Russia, the Baltics, uh, up to Germany. And then there's a whole uh, thing in like Spain and London and the UK and Ireland. The cancer societies now have like, they, they've been able to understand like cancer in age brackets versus cancer as this, the one size fits all.
1: Yeah.
0: And again, young adult cancer, the treatment's the same. The, the chemotherapy is all the same. It's about how you are treated from a dignity perspective based on your age in life. Because yeah. that matters. And now that there's so much evidence-based data to support that outcomes are improved, when you're treated age appropriately, and that there's cost benefit savings, productivity gains, health economic indicators, that when you treat somebody as a person, they live longer, they live better, and they save the system money. You can't argue with that, but that's because of young adult cancer. Phenomenal. What a phenomenal story. So you spend, what, a dozen or more years there. Uh, the, the original idea was in 06 or 05. Okay. 06 was the marinating. Okay. 07 was the launch. And I exited this February 2019. So one might argue between 13 and 15 years. And when we spoke
1: before this interview, you gave a quote to me and you said, stepping down is hard, but knowing when. It's harder
0: yeah it was um i uh i was newly married with no kids in that flush when i started this and i was 45 married with nine eight-year-olds and you get a little beaten up when you become cancer famous and you run this massive organization and you know um it got to a point where I, I, I think the tipping point for me, actually, I can tell you, the tipping point for me was I had to be in Los Angeles three straight weekends in a row. So that's six long-haul flights, three weeks in a row, done me in. And I'm on a roof deck with a friend of mine in Santa Monica waiting to drive to, LA, to for the Uber to LAX. And I just said to her, like, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. And she said, you'll be fine. And that's, had it been my wife or my dad, would have been a different response. But just having her validate that I'll be fine put me into this whole retrospective mode of of what did I do? What did it do? What got done? Is it okay to leave? What's going to happen if I do? Do I have guilt? My kids should probably start knowing who I am at this point because I was away so much they turned eight, you know, they get sentient and they know when you're absent and you're stressed and they see the differences in your body language and your timing and your exhaustion. Um, I would say two thirds of the reason I left were clearly personal. I was burned out. I feel like I built my own glass ceiling. How long could you be CEO for? You'll always be founder, but there's nowhere to go. But out. <laughs> there's no up there's just out um, I also feel like there was a level of mission accomplished and I wrote this in my LinkedIn exit which got like got 80,000 I, I 88,000 the exit heard around the world was what I was told it was like no one ever thought I would leave and that I went out on top and knowing one is harder yeah. uh, I feel like young adult cancer sucked a whole lot more than every other cancer and now it sucks around the same as every cancer and that you may or may not be more likely to live or die but your quality of life will for surely be better than it was 15 years ago Um, and it's it's the adage there's more work to do there's no end in sight you know but now it's time to let someone else figure out what to do with the maintenance of the sisyphus is over you know it's up the hill i'm going to find my next hill but someone's got to keep the mesa but when you look back on those 13 years do you smile i have no idea how to... can i curse of course how the fuck we get anything done i i the fact that my right, so my co-founder Kenny and i are still best friends like he was my second first employee in uh fall of 09 uh, part time then full time in like april 2010 and we have no idea how the hell we did the two of us for years. Me alone for years. How? My first office was an elevator shaft, a freight elevator shaft was my first office. For free, who would want to work out of a freight? They they cemented the floor. But you had a you had a mission. You had a purpose. It was perseverance. I just like I had to get this figured out. I, I not that the book will ever get written, but the idea that we pulled it off by accident, by falling with style, and letting the river carve itself, and listening, and seeing. We were on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, uh, Dig, Delicious, MySpace, all, every friendster, every single thing that happened, Reddit, before there were anything, we were on them. You know, we had community forum boards, and the podcast, before it was a podcast, uh, road trips, and meetups, and bar nights, and poetry sessions, and slam, I, everything. We stuck the spaghetti and it worked. But I was just like, I can't, even still, this has been the most reflective, self-reflective year of, of my life. And like, how the hell did this happen? But it's amazing.
1: Awesome. Talk about
0: the right to parenthood. So one, one could debate this statement depending on how you interpret the constitution but parenthood is a right not a liberty if you are an american citizen and you want to be a biological mother or father it's your constitutional right to do so and that nothing should bar you there's no government interference that should prevent you from becoming a parent um so if you're diagnosed with cancer in your fertile years, and there is a barrier, like like a, a student loan debt or uh, Medicaid reimbursement difficulties, or, or some kind of federal impediment, where you can't have a child. It's technically unconstitutional. Um, it doesn't work that way. You're not going to sue your doctor like a slip and fall if they forget to do these things. But the idea that that the greatest gift. In my opinion, is 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 having children. Not everyone feels that way, which is fine. Um, is taken away from you because something happened that you didn't ask for, and that you now have to encumber tremendous debt or stress just for the privilege of rearing a child into the world is 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 astonishing. Um, cancer is a great example of that because there are maybe 80,000 diagnoses a year in, your, in their fertile years. I would say like 18 to 45, 46, right? Okay. 80,000 diagnoses a year of people in their fertile years. Half are fine, so stage one or whatever. Uh, but the other half face potential cataclysm. Whether you're disclosed or not that your chemo, radiation, immunotherapy, mean, surgery could prevent you from carrying a baby. All your eggs are gone. You lose your sperm count, um, so there's been this massive movement, uh, even since I jumped into the advocacy bandwagon in 06. How do we guarantee right to parenthood through disease? And it often falls to the employer, because you're, most people in the fertility years are employed. Right. So you're beholden to the plans, and you don't, no one looked at their benefits for fertility when they're, you know, it's like, here's your giant book, go work. No, it doesn't happen. It's like the terms of service for iTunes, right? How many people actually? No, no one. So we look at the um, what I call the Miranda rights of fertility that can, should be read to you before this informed consent for treatment. Mm-hmm. And it rarely happens. Our research has shown that 9 out of 10 women are not read those Miranda rights. And you're saying it's a law that they should... No, I'm saying no, that it's a right that they that should the be read those rights. Right.
1: And it, but today it's not.
0: It's not. No, no. Nothing, has, nothing can mandate physician behavior unless there's a billing code attached to it. Like informed consent is a billing code. Like mm-hmm. you go through this, this, here's the surgery, here's the medicine, here's, you sign off your life like the roller coaster of great adventure. But you're saying the right to parenthood is so important, it should be part of that process. Yeah, but I again, mean, yeah, it goes back to money. If there's no billing code... They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. I mean, there's empathy. There, there's, there's practices out there, but there's no guarantee that that Miranda conversation is going to happen. So, again, whether it's endometriosis, harbormyalgia, lupus, Crohn's, some syndrome disease, MS, cancer, men and women have the right to know whether their, their treatments are going to cause infertility, exacerbate infertility, That's and true. prevent them from wow. biological parenthood. And, yes, adoption and surrogacy are great, but, like, no one chooses
1: right.
0: adoption or surrogacy. I mean, some do. But, I mean, when presented with infertility, if your plan is to be a mom or a dad one day and shit happens that, that messes up your, your, you your body. You have right to know. You have the right to know in advance and a right to preserve that fertility. Yes. At minimal cost. Yes. So I'm on the guy side of the thing. So I did preserve. I did bank my sperm because I was treated at NYU.
1: How did you know? Who, who?
0: They told me. It was a stand. So when you're a teenager at NYU, because it was pediatrics, they bank your sperm. They knew. Because pediatrics, Sidney Farber set this up so in the 70s. Smart. Like When you're pediatrics, if you're of age, you can bank your sperm as a teenager. Adolescent young adult is like 18 to 40. Nothing. right? And then old people don't bank your sperm. So... It was one of the benefits of being a pediatric cancer patient as a young adult is they told me to bank my sperm. Cost me a lot of money out of pocket. I kept them frozen for '96 to 2009. So add up three thousand bucks a year times whatever that was, and like, a lot eh, lot of money. Um, And then push came to shove. My wife and I had to figure out, you know, how much is it going to cost us to bear children because I was infertile. She had a convoluted ovary from surgery in in her 20s Um, so she was compromised naturally and I was compromised because of cancer Um, but I only knew about this am I fertile, what do I do because I was part of the young adult cancer movement there were so many other sects of our community that were focused on infertility rights and infertility access and infertility medications and research and trials out there that I was mosified, is that a word? I osmosis, yes, I like that it. wisdom over. And one of the flagship temples of super cancer was you have the right to be a mom or a dad wow. if you choose to, and cancer shouldn't get in the way, and it shouldn't cost you a home equity line of credit to adopt a kid
1: right.
0: as recompense for something you didn't ask for. So, to me, in our culture of life, whatever you want to spin some of the, the nonsense you know the last thing we want is to not be able to have kids if that's our goal in life and if a chronic disease comes and messes that up why should you have to pay to be a mom or a dad yeah. that's just my my perspective like it, it, the shit happens door greeter should say by the way this is going to mess you up but we're going to make sure that when all is right in the universe for you you have a path to parenthood and are you on a path to try to help with this movement. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm. I feel I'm the loudest male voice for female infertility in the country, and I work with a company called Med Answers. My friend Alice runs it. She had breast cancer, froze her and froze her eggs, had a frozen embryo from a donor sperm, got through her treatments, and then had a baby, and he's a beautiful boy now. But she's a single mom, and she's the loudest, one of the loudest female fertility advocates in the country for anything, not just cancer. And she has an app, and her app connects anyone interested in infertility wisdom to providers, not to peers, to doctors, nurses, social workers, reproductive endocrinologists. Um, So it's free text-based support from HCPs without insurance, so there's no primary care needed, no referrals. And her mission is to make sure every single person that is either – In jeopardy of infertility or or naturally infertile. Guaranteed access to the right decisions. Have the awareness around. Awareness around your rights and your choices that's for you. And ideally, the insurance companies will cover it. But I will tell you one thing. Um, I would say the greatest success, and I think I mentioned this before, in the infertility movement is that um, I think it's like 11 or 12 states now. Look at states' rights um, there's been such a surge of influence in the lobbying movement that eleven states now guarantee insurance coverage for fertility preservation. Wow. That's awesome. Through Medicare or Medicaid. Through state. So whether your employer covers it or whether you're on the exchange or whether you have no insurance, if you're diagnosed, diagnosed with anything, cancer, whatever, you the if you're aware of it, again it goes back to like, just because it's covered doesn't mean the doctor's going to have the Miranda rights. Right. So there's no billing code for it because it's free. So people have to do their research and... Yeah. I mean, it just comes down to how do you know shit exists and the shit happens to so when There's no demand for that market. Right. But I'm, I'm on a pedestal about rights to parenthood through chronic disease. Great cause. Uh, you once posted
1: something that I loved. It says, uh, the best revenge is
0: massive. Success What did you mean by that? It also goes the other way. The best success is massive revenge. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the second one's a little <laughs> bit more evil, yeah. but the first one's a little more positive. Um, you get beat up. you know there are there are bad people out there, haters. yeah. Um, and you know shot for it can go both ways. When it goes your way, it's great. you know but you kind of feel bad about. Feeling bad about things, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, don't believe in competition. I believe in relevancy. So, and I, I, don't, I don't harbor, but there's a sense of like. If I can create relevancy for myself, nothing else that I did matters, and we also like it's like ninety percent of the noise is made by five percent of the people. I'm sorry, ninety percent of the noise. Yeah, ninety percent of the noise is made by five percent of the people. So fuck them <laughs> seriously you know twitter's noise is robots and idiots right like like oh, there's like six million people on twitter and have are bots it's like a little no one's on twitter right so but it's like, you have to like
1: if you how don't long, roll with
0: the punches you just get get beat up yeah how long
1: did it take you to figure that out or feel that way
0: I'm. I'm still. I, it's. It's frail ego. You know. I think. I'm thinking. I'm glad I didn't peak in my twenties. <laughs> kind of like a blessing in disguise that my twenties totally sucked. Uh, you. It, it's all about. You know. Trying to not. I think Gary Vee said it best. Like judgment. Feeling judged or living with 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 the feeling of being judged is the number one self-limiting thing that prevents success. And always worrying about what other people think is a hindrance to growth, personal and, and business growth. I, I botched up the quote, but that's the gist of it. And yeah, I have a frail ego and I'm worried about these things. And you know, But it, it's the confidence to realize that you don't have to be better than someone else. You just have to be more relevant to the crowd that you care about. And I love that what's that? if you're going through hell keep going or if you haven't gone through the shit you don't know what roses smell like <laughs> something like that right without any evil there's no good how do you know yeah. uh, you know you don't get to be a, a global executive and at the level of exposure that I've had to to, to you know be loved and squeezed every day so tell us about off script <laughs> My, uh, my second act, or actually really my fourth <laughs> act at this point now, I have acts I've had. Um, I guess in, in all the white noise of having no job, I mean, I had work and I'm speaking and things, but in the absence of day-to-day, 80-hour, 90-hour-a-week white noise, over the course of a couple of months, I realized I missed one thing. I missed being behind a mic. I miss being the, more of the comedy central Howard Stern than the 80s, 90s Howard Stern of healthcare. You know, just calling out bullshit, having great interviews, meeting wonderful people, reaching tons, like being a news source, an influencer, decision maker, a driver of of, of conversations, and I missed it. It was like a drug to get on the air, audiences, right? Um, talking to people, meeting them, just... I missed it so much, and i um it dawned on me in like mid June that what would it take I'd, i i don't, I don't want to just start a podcast to start a podcast. that has to be purpose, right? Can I make a living? Am I worried of advertisers? How do we get hundred thousand the whole nonsense of like then gimlet got bought by Spotify and I started doing research on podcast production companies and Netflix and luminary and like there's like a quarter billion podcasts how am I going to be a thing? So I started convening Rolodex friends from all levels of C-suites and pharma and, and insurance companies and payers and the government and just friends. And I said, if I'm going to get back on the mic and become Howard Stern for healthcare, not just cancer, what would you think that should look like? What do you think I should talk about? Very leading questions. And And over the course of what was it, like four months now, and like 68 versions of this wonderful little PowerPoint I've been ideating off-script media was born. Um, as we're still ironing out the, the elevator pitch, but I, I like to think of it as the first sort of patient advocacy content company that tells stories, influence, news, and narrative through podcasting. And that is health attainment in a (laughs) sense. And I'm the engine to get it off the ground. And we can do editorials, sponsored content, branded content, consumer marketing, product reviews, and hit on evergreen topics that people just want to listen to and subscribe to, like insurance, employment, guilt, bereavement, survivorship, relationships, fertility, cannabis, policy, internet, social media footprints, um, business development, like this no limit to the, the, um, the quality of content, but it's through this lens of beat cancer and they're at a charity. How many people like that really are there? And I'm a podcaster. So it's, it's, it's this wonderful Frankensteinian media company that a lot of people are really supporting. The the concept of and our goal is to launch next year to great fanfare, with my show which is just all script with Matthew Zachary, and the tagline is that patients are losing their patience. <laughs> I love it. Which is like we're just again That's when, when you enter the shit happens store, there's no greeter. Yeah. You know can we all be greeters, and when you're done shopping in the shit happens store, you can then become a greeter. And on the website, I noticed there were different
1: channels or different. uh, themes what were the, the, the there were several in the yeah. mix i
0: don't know if it was six or eight yes yeah, so over the course of the shows that i'll be producing on my channel we're going to do segments okay segments on cannabis fertility policy and ideally kind of like fraser from cheers they'll spin out to their own shows with other hosts other guests and other programming syndicated a, across yeah. the off script network it sounds fascinating and it to me,
1: I just you know I sit back and listen to your whole story It, it feels like everything from the music to going through your 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 cancer uh, to you know struggling to the foundation everything now is coming to this place mm-hmm. where you've put this wonderful idea together and i again, white space, I feel you're going to nail this. Um, there's a huge need. Patients need (laughs) (laughs) patients.
0: Yeah. I just look at the content out there in the health podcasting world and it's either doctors, politicians, doctor, politicians, or really well polished videos that look like Oprah did them. And that's not what people want to hear. They want real talk. They want honesty. They, they want to nod their heads and say, that guy's talking about what's in my head. That's what Stupid Cancer did. It said all the things that were in your head. And whether it's a specific show on a specific disease, a specific show on a specific issue, or evergreen content that just people want to listen to, it has to be the Festivus of podcasting for the people. It's podcasting for the people in the Shit Happens story. Maybe that's the, the byline. <laughs> podcasting for all the people in the Shit Happens story. Yeah. Are you excited? I mean, I, I'm so, I'm very excited, but I'm even more excited about how this all came to fruition because the community that I helped create is now supporting me to get this to be a thing. And all the companies that threw millions of dollars at Stupid Cancer, I can now help pay them back by giving them great content. Doing show, whether, whether they own it or I own it, like we're media production. I would love to just be a podcaster for them and have them on my show. There's so much reciprocity, oh, yeah. unlimited content, marketing, influence, sales. I'm back, to, I'm building The ad agency, I should have. So awesome. Um,
1: Any regrets if you look back on, say, the last 20, 25 years?
0: I should not have taken the stupid cancer show to YouTube. I should have kept it as a podcast and doubled down on it. But podcasts had not yet exploded yet. It was still 2016. I don't think podcasts really became a big deal till after the election. Yeah, I agree with Gimlet, Luminary, uh, Crooked Media, and uh, Spotify mm-hmm. starting podcasts. Mm-hmm. So I would have kept it as a podcast, doubled down on it, t- doubled the advertising budget, done three or four shows a week. Uh, from a from an operational regret, I don't I don't think I have any other like legit regrets.
1: Well, look, this has been. Tremendous. I, I want to sit back with you a year from now if we can Yeah, and just see what happens uh, with your new venture because yeah. it's so exciting and you're going to bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. I could, I could tell. Yeah. Uh, your personality, all of your knowledge, experience, um, your guests. Um, it's, it's going to be incredible. I'm excited. So so let's plan that if we can. Okay, that's a date. Okay. And and we got to I'll buy my DeLorean <laughs> now. Do it. Uh but one last question Matt. And, sure, and sure. thank you again for for your time oh, tonight. Yeah. And um uh welcome to the America Real family. Sure. But one last question before I let you go and I ask every guest. At the end of the day, what do you want your legacy to be?
0: Yeah, uh, gotcha question. <laughs> my children I want them to grow up to the extent that you have control over them which I still do nine years old Uh, healthy, happy productive empathetic sympathetic caring, loving humans incredible Matt
1: Zachary you're smart I met a new friend today, I learned a lot. Thank you for coming on and uh, let's do it again. This was fantastic. Awesome. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for tuning in to American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one on one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy where we have self help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook. Or email me directly at roger at TV. And speaking of podcasting, our next course will be starting soon. So if you're interested in launching your own podcast, join me and podcast your passion. I'll take you through my eight week course where I'll mentor you to build a world class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting, where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you podcast your passion click on the link below for more information thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week